All right, we will go ahead and begin because it's nine o'clock and we have some really good things to talk about this morning. So let me pray and we'll dive right in. Father, thank you for your love for us. Thank you that you have given us the capacity to make moral judgments. Thank you that you do convict us of sin and guide us by your spirit. I pray that you would be with us now as we try to think about the conscience, what it is, what its job is, how we ought to relate as moral beings to you and to one another. In Christ we pray. Amen. All right. Well, we are taking a sharp turn from considering different doctrinal divisions, disagreements, points of unity, to thinking about the conscience. Um, This is a tough topic. I, I don't know what to say other than we have to go so slowly through it that I had to add more weeks to this class. So um, that's just, I guess, how we do Bible class around here. So maybe it would even be helpful, helpful to think we just had doctrine class. Now we're starting something new, conscience class. And both of them are going to take longer than I thought. We're going to spend do four weeks of conscience, followed by a fifth review and then Q&A. Because as I wrote the lessons, I realized I... I won't be able to say everything I need to say, and um, it's okay for us to slow down. If you have questions along the way, feel free to ask. I'll try to stop, pause, help you out. Um, Jiminy Cricket, yep, temptations. They're the wrong things that seem right at the time, but uh, even the right things may seem wrong sometimes, or sometimes the wrong things maybe right at the wrong time, or vice versa. Understand? Isn't that how most of us think about moral issues? It's very complicated, uh, more complicated sometimes though than we'd like to admit. If you're someone who likes to see everything black and white, probably don't like that sentence. If you're someone who likes to live in the gray, you're probably saying, yeah, you're exactly right, Jiminy. And we'll, we'll see if he is right maybe by the end of our lesson. But what comes to mind when you hear the term conscience issue? When someone talks about a conscience issue, what comes to mind? Probably any number of disputable matters, things that you might disagree with another Christian about. Pretty much any time you disagree with someone and it's not like clear in the Bible, we're saying, oh, this must be a conscience issue. It's an ambivalent issue, a gray area. And we need to figure out how to work through those issues together and how to live as a church together when we might disagree about some of those conscience issues. But to do that, we need to first understand what the conscience is, or else we have no framework for understanding how to navigate conscience issues. So all that we're going to do today is try to define the conscience um, and try to tell you what it's not, what it is, and what it does. All right? So I want to give you two misconceptions of conscience. I think most Christians grab onto one or the other of these, and I want to suggest that they're both wrong. The first is conscience as your superego, or the most moral part of you, we might say. So many popular conceptions of conscience derive from Sigmund Freud's investigation of the interaction between the conscience and the unconscious. And he divides the human into the id, the ego, and the superego. The id, that's your base desires, Uh, The ego is kind of like you, um, self-conscious you, 
And then the superego is all of the external frameworks of society that would give you a way to live, kind of the moral good. Um, so have, have any of you, like, really gotten into Freud? Ben, a couple. So, so my senior paper for college was writing a psychoanalytic analysis of The Lord of the Flies. So you're identifying a character in each one of these, and you see how they're relating to one another. And it's supposed to just be an expression of the internal person with these conscious and unconscious movements where the base desires are held captive by the id through the influence of the superego. Uh, by the ego through the super influence of the superego. The way that this works out in conscience, though, is a picture like this one. So if you've watched the delightful film Emperor's New Groove, uh, Kronk faces some situations where he can either do what is right or what is wrong, and an angel and a devil pop up on his shoulder, and he's in between, and they're trying to convince him to either do what is right or to do what is wrong. So the angel would be the superego, he himself would be the ego, the I, and then um, the, the devil would be the id, the, the base desires. So this is, I think, a really popular way that conscience is portrayed, and then Christians buy into it because they'll grab onto some biblical language and misconstrue what the biblical authors are saying. So they tend to dress these figures up with biblical language in this way. They'll refigure the new man as the superego, encouraging the Christian, the ego, to do what is right and to reject the inclinations of the old man, the id. So it sounds biblical, but it's actually just the imposition of a psychoanalytic framework onto the biblical text. And then we think about our conscience that way. Uh, the conscience is the angel, and then whatever the bad, like, evil twin of the conscience is, that's the demon, and I'm, like, trying to arbitrate and figure out what I should do. But the biblical portrayal of humanity is as a psychosomatic whole, that is, mind and body, one, one human. You know, they can't be separated. The only thing that can separate the mind and the body is death, and that's the most unnatural of things, and that's not God's plan. If, if that were God's plan, there wouldn't be a resurrection someday. So, when we're trying to distinguish the parts of us, it gets a little bit tricky because we just have words and terms that we use to try to express what's going on inside of us, but we're a unified whole. We can speak meaningfully about our experiences, so we can say something like, my heart hurts, but we have to caution against dividing the human person into multiple parts and then constructing a moral theology based on those multiple parts. Now, I, this goes a little bit beyond what we can do in the class. Conservative Christians often come up with this wrong view of humanity called a tripart view of humanity, where your body, soul, and strength, or body, mind, and spirit. The, the problem with dividing yourself up into those three parts is if you take all of the language of the biblical authors, you'd have like 20 parts to you. Heart, mind, soul, strength, just the list goes on and on. So when the biblical authors are saying those things, they are not trying to give you a breakdown of parts of you that are inside of you that you can't see. They're just talking about the whole person in various ways. So the first wrong image is angel, demon, you making a decision. The second wrong image is that of the conscience as lawgiver. So the conscience as moral lawgiver. 
I think that this one is even more popular among Christians and perhaps even more detrimental to um, a moral theology, a moral way of life. Many people think of the conscience as either an external voice force talking to them or a separate but internal part of them that adjudicates between right and wrong. So those who listen to their conscience do what is right, while those who ignore their conscience do what is wrong. This is the popular conception. In that view, the conscience asserts a moral law and attempts to get you to comply with that moral law. One popular portrayal of conscience as lawgiver is Disney's Jiminy Cricket. Okay, so in this story, the blue fairy assigns Pinocchio a conscience, this cricket, to aid him in the quest to become a real boy. So a real boy, a real human, is someone who listens to the external lawgiver, the conscience. Pinocchio's confused about this. He asks for a definition of conscience, so Jiminy floats down and instructs, the conscience is that still small voice that people won't listen to. You know, so that it's a moral law. It's a still small voice that you hear that a lot of people don't listen to, but you really should. All you need to do is listen to your conscience. Let your conscience be your guide, or is portrayed in Disney, better yet, his God, so that he can arbitrate between good and evil. Uh, this is a wrong view of conscience. Christians adopt this image of conscience as something external to them or an internal voice inside of them, and they give it godlike authority. So they recast Paul's instructions to act in accordance with faith in Romans 14, a text that never once references the conscience, and they recast it as an exhortation never to go against your conscience, to always let your conscience be your guide. It's effectively equating the conscience with God as moral lawgiver. So as with the Freudian conception of conscience, the lawgiver conception sounds biblical, but the biblical notion of conscience assigns it a role as a lower court judge, not a legislator. Our consciences cannot legislate God's law for us. They can only retroactively tell us if we've complied with God's law, and even then, they're a lower court judge. Conscience is a lower court judge. God is the ultimate judge. So I'm afraid that Christians allow their vision of conscience to be shaped by Pinocchio's Jiminy Cricket, and they make their conscience their God, which is not that much different than Adam and Eve eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that says we want to determine what will be right or wrong for us. We don't want what God has to say. We want what we feel to be right, what we think to be right, to be our way of operating. So I, what I'm trying to do here is say, don't think of conscience as a moral lawgiver. Think of it as a lower court judge. If you think of your conscience as a, lo, as a lawgiver, you run the risk of confusing Jiminy's description of conscience as a still small voice with the Holy Spirit. So I think very often people say, I feel this way about a particular thing. Therefore, that's the Holy Spirit saying making this judgment about a particular thing. Then Christians unconsciously conflate Disney's representation of conscience with the Holy Spirit, leading them to equate their moral judgments and laws with those of the Holy Spirit. That's a problem. 
um, be, especially when you get in contact with other Christians who ostensibly also have the Holy Spirit, in their rendering different judgments about these conscience issues. So I, I think this is a, the most important concept I want you to grasp. Your conscience is not God. Your conscience is you. Okay, that, that's where we're going to go. So taking those two misconceptions... I want to say that it's okay to personify our consciences. We can say, my conscience tells me, but we should never confuse it with an external object or internal object that's apart from the self. Conscience is simply you in moral action. Conscience is a self speaking to the self about good and evil. So that voice in your head, either accusing you or excusing you, is you Influenced by your culture, your family customs, your religious instructions, institutions, and a lot of other factors that you might not even be aware of. So once we establish that the conscience is just you, self-consciously engaged in moral reasoning, we will be better positioned to examine these biblical texts that relate to conscience. All right, so I want to give you a, a quick example of conscience in action. The self with all of the influences on the self, rendering a moral judgment about something. Um, Mel, I hope this won't embarrass you too much. Mel played guitar on a Wednesday night, and he had a hat on in the building, and he had it on backwards. I grew up in a home that said if you're ever in a building with your hat on, you must take it off, and under no circumstances whatsoever should you wear your hat backwards, unless it's a raccoon hat with the tail backwards, because otherwise you, you're a gangster and you're disrespecting the Lord. And maybe there's even a text in 1 Corinthians where we won't make women wear head coverings, but we'll make men take them off. And so with all of those influences, some leveraging Bible verses, some just the culture that I grew up in, when I saw Mel playing guitar, worshiping the Lord with his hat on, for a split second I thought, why is he wearing his hat? But, but because conscience operates self-consciously, we're aware of these judgments, I was also thinking, but I don't have any problem with that. And in fact, the, the day that I learned I didn't have a problem with that was when I was like 10 years old, and my dad and I were ice fishing, and we're like freezing on this lake, and he's like, well, we got to pray before we eat our frozen sandwiches, but I think God will understand if we leave our hats on. And I immediately started to think, well, if God understands then, like, do those verses mean anything? And from that point on, I started to reason morally, making the judgment, I could wear my hat when I pray, or I could wear my hat in a building. But I'm living in my parents' house, and I don't want to get in trouble, so I'm never going to do that. But, but you see how, like, all of those voices that were going on in my head, that was me. That wasn't the Holy Spirit. That wasn't God. That, that wasn't anything external to me. It was me going through the process of moral reasoning in a particular situation. And sometimes our moral judgments will be correct. Sometimes they will be errant because we are errant people. We, we don't always make accurate judgments in morality, in depth perception, in anything. We, we make mistakes all the time. So this ethicist sets forward a description of conscience that I think will help us. Your conscience is simply you, 
Or more precisely, it is you as engaged in a particular kind of mental activity. When you act conscientiously, when you exercise your conscience, what you are doing is performing a specific kind of mental act, making an intellectual judgment, which is an evaluative decision whereby you distinguish between moral right and wrong. That is the essence of what we call conscience. To follow one's conscience, then, is simply to behave in accordance with the distinctions made by an intellectual judgment, doing what is morally right, avoiding what is morally wrong, or at least what you perceive to be morally right and morally wrong. So the conscience is just you involved in moral reasoning. So this, this is a hard concept to understand, especially if you always refer to the conscience as if it's something separate than you. We, you need to maybe just for like a couple years cut that definite article off every time you say conscience so you realize the conscience is me. Um, maybe this will help. The analogy to the imagination. You don't have an imagination inside of you. There's not a part of your brain that is the imagination or a uh, metaphysical part of you that's the imagination. That's just a term for a different activity. Conscience is a term for moral judgment activity. Imagination is a term for imaginative activity. So um, constructing images in your mind. That's what the imagination is. The imagination isn't a thing. It's you involved in a particular action. Does this make sense? This is a difficult concept because that definite article trips us up and it makes us think of the conscience, the imagination, uh, the mind, the heart, the soul. It's something other than us, but we're just a unified whole in action doing certain things and we give terms to those actions. Um, Conscience is a term for moral reasoning Imagination is a term for image constructing. We're all following? Okay. If you can get this concept, you will do well for the rest of the class and the rest of the course. Um, I'm, I'm overemphasizing it because it's not emphasized enough. Uh, so even when people do recognize this, so for instance, that book I recommended by Nacelli and Crowley, they, ta- they define conscience very similar to the way I will, but then they go on for the rest of the time and almost talk about conscience as something other than you, as your cricket that accompanies you. And uh, that's, that's a problem. That's not the biblical conception of conscience. All right. So let's look at conscience in the Old Testament. Believe it or not, there is no term for conscience in the Old Testament. Conscience never appears in the Old Testament. Um, and this is a, a helpful realization. Because if we can say there's no term for conscience in the Old Testament, then we can be on good ground when we say that in the New Testament, when they use the term conscience, they're not referring to a part of us that somehow, between a transition from Hebraic thought to Greek thought, created a part of us that's now a conscience that we have. They just have different ways about talking about the inner person. So in the Hebrew Bible, When moral reasoning and moral judgments are described, they're generally connected to heart. Again, we can add the definite article, the heart, to it. But really, it's just a term that describes the roots of our knowing, willing, and feeling. It's you in action. So in the Old Testament, moral reasoning is described as an activity of the heart. 
Now, some modern Bible translations are saying, well, in our Western world, we have a term conscience, and it describes more readily for us what heart describes in the Old Testament. So some Bible translations will translate heart as conscience. And that's okay because they're speaking our language. That's good translation, but we need to just know that that's happening. So in Genesis 20, in the CSB, um, Abraham, is it? No, who is this? 20. That's Abraham. I did this with a clear conscience. ESV, in the integrity of my heart, I have done this. For Samuel 24, 5, NLT, but then David's conscience began bothering him. NRSV, afterward, David was stricken to the heart. Job 27.6, NIV, my conscience will not reproach me as long as I live. NASB, my heart does not rebuke any of my days. So you see how conscience and heart are the same concepts. They're used as synonyms. Just in our culture, when we talk about heart, we think Valentine's Day and romantic love. So conscience actually is a better translation because it speaks into the, the linguistic categories that we have but you shouldn't think that you have a conscience. You are a person who does moral reasoning that we describe as conscious. Conscience. Self-conscious, conscience, action. These things are connected, all right? Uh, This guy, uh, Peter Gentry, explains, in the Hebrew word, heart refers to the core of who you are, the center of each person. It refers in particular to the place where we feel, think, make decisions, and plans. In other words, your emotions, mind, and will. Thus, the heart is a key term in the Old Testament for identifying personhood. Golden Gate clarifies, in the scriptures, the heart is the inner person. The heart is where you do your thinking, form your attitudes, and evaluate what you have done. In other words, the heart covers what we call the mind, the thinking, and the conscience. So they're the same thing. Um, The heart is the self-conscious inner you. To say that your heart condemns you, vindicates you, hurts you, is simply to say that you self-consciously Engage in those activities at the core of your being. Now, I want to follow up this realization with with another important point that connects to my argument against conscience as moral lawgiver. Your heart is also not your moral lawgiver. That means it can't be central to your ethics. It can't be the authority for your moral reasoning and judgment. Instead, God's commands and character are the central features of the Old Testament ethics. So Golden Gate goes on. The important thing then is not to assume you can work things out for yourself. In the West, we're inclined to assume that we understand better than previous generations did. We make the assumption that because we do know more about matters, such as the working of the physical world, that we forget that we probably know less about personal relationships and wisdom. So we try to say, in our construction of humanity, uh, our understanding of the self, and our understanding of the world, uh, we can become the center of our moral reasoning. It's what I think. I'm going to follow my heart. I'm going to follow my conscience. The opposite of trusting Yahweh with your mind, then, is to assume that you can work things out for yourself. Our minds have to be open to learning, discipline, rebuke, and even orders. You can convince yourself that you're an ethical person, but Yahweh knows you better than you know yourself. So he's introducing this idea that if conscience and heart can't be central to your moral reasoning, something else has to, and that's God and his word. So you have to be open to being rebuked, instructed, and redirected. To put it in this context, you have to at times 
more often than not, and even many times when you don't realize it, allow your conscience to be informed, to allow your heart to be shaped differently so that you know the way in which you should go, even if it doesn't feel like that's the way you should go. The heart is important, but most important is that the heart, the whole person, hears, obeys, and loves God. So we follow God's commands and his moral instruction. We don't follow our hearts. We don't follow our conscience. All right. Conscience in the New Testament. Uh, New Testament authors do speak of conscience, but none of them record Oh, man, I'm finding so many typos here, but that's the nice thing about working right from this document. The New Testament authors don't record Jesus speaking of conscience. Instead, he utilizes the Old Testament language of heart, uh, and he centers in his ethic love for God and love for neighbor. So if you want to think about what should be central to your moral reasoning, it's not your conscience, it's not your heart, it's the way of Christ defined by love for God and love for neighbors. In fact, Jesus calls people to adopt his way of life and to set aside their own way of life, even when their consciences did not like it. So we'll get to this later in in Acts, right, when the Lord speaks to Peter and instructs his conscience so that Peter will operate differently. He'll operate in the way of Christ so that now Peter will eat with Gentiles and prostitutes and sinners, So we need to be open to our consciences, our hearts being instructed by the way of Christ. We need to be more than open. We need to be submissive to that. Other New Testament authors also adopt the Old Testament language to speak of our inner person. So the Apostle John writes that whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts and he knows all things. When you think of your heart condemning you, you can plug in whenever our conscience condemns us. God is greater than our hearts. So it's not so much that our conscience is our ultimate judge, but that God is our ultimate judge. God transcends our hearts in his omniscience. So our inner conscience is not always a reliable indicator. We need assurance apart from our inner selves. Isn't that so freeing to say that my assurance for my moral living and way of life doesn't come from me pronouncing myself good? That's what Jesus saves us from. And instead, we have God pronouncing moral judgments and legislating a way of life. And again, John connects this to the commands of Christ, specifically that command to love one another. That's the center of a biblical ethic and moral rationale. But across the two Testaments, I'm trying to say heart and conscience are interchangeable terms for the same thing. One author brings them together. The author of Hebrews instructs, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Now, he's not trying to say that they're separate things. This is a Hebraic author speaking into a Hellenistic world, and he brings them together. They're the same thing. They need cleansing, um, and that can happen through Jesus. Uh, So whenever we talk about heart, conscience, if we're going to do a study on this, we'd actually need to look up every appearance of heart in the New Testament and every appearance of conscience. So that's another weakness of the Nicelli Crowley book that I've recommended. They only look at the appearance of conscience. They don't consider all the appearances of heart. And we have to consider texts that don't use either term because there are manifold ways of talking about our inner person involved in moral reasoning. But um, 
ultimately, as we consider it, I don't want you to be persuaded that your conscience is the center of your ethic. Even though we're going to look at that for the rest of class, how conscience operates, that's not the center. God's commands, particularly the commands to love him and to love others, should be the center of our moral reasoning. Um, So, throughout the New Testament, though, Paul in particular uses the term conscience, and uh, he'll use adjectives to describe it. You know, our conscience can um, be seared, it can be good, it can be clear, it can be weak. In other words, he's describing the inner person after an act. Um, But then also the conscience is described as doing something, bearing witness, knowing, testifying. Um, And it can also be acted on, as I've already suggested. It can be purified or it can be defiled. So external factors do influence the conscience for better or for worse. It's not an autonomous entity because you are not an autonomous entity and the conscience is you. Finally, conscience cannot be separated from consciousness. When the inner person is engaged in moral reasoning and judgment, it does so with a measure of self-awareness or self-consciousness, even if that self-awareness is misguided. Um, So if someone is operating within their self-conscious moral judgments, they're going to have a clear conscience, even if their actions are morally wrong. So again, um, your conscience is just you aware of the morality of what you're doing or of what you have done. Um, So someone might self-consciously but wrongly determine that a particular action is good. So in keeping with that moral reasoning and judgment, the person acts. Um, To that person's knowledge, they've acted ethically. But because his moral reasoning was inaccurate, his clean conscience action permitted him to commit evil without any self-condemnation. So that's a possibility, and um, that's a problem. You know, so we we have to, again, submit our conscience to the instruction of God and his word. A person's self-conscious determination of right and wrong may be inaccurate, as I've just said. Someone may wrongly identify evil as good or good as evil. In those instances, someone might have an accusing heart or conscience, but be vindicated by God, while others might have an excusing heart and conscience and be condemned by God. That's the whole point of Romans 2. Some people might feel like what they're doing is wrong, but it's actually what God determines is right. Someone else might feel like they're doing something right, but it's what God has determined is morally wrong. So our conscience is an unreliable guide. It needs redemption and renewal. Okay, let me talk about the implications of conscience in the New Testament and the Old. First, conscience and heart refers to the inner self. Most references to conscience have to do with self-conscious moral judgment, but on the whole, we could say that the conscience refers to the inner person involved in moral reasoning. The conscience is you. You are your conscience. Second, although conscience is important for ethics and moral action, it can never be central to ethical decision-making. It's not an external force that guides. Instead, it's the self that must be shaped by the commands of Christ and compelled by love for God and love for others. The inner self, conscience, cannot establish what is right and wrong, good and evil. On the contrary, it must conform to God's judgments about right and wrong. Third, because conscience can be misinformed or misguided, it may need to be calibrated, may need to be aligned differently. More than that, when a person becomes self-conscious that their their moral reasoning is faulty, they should pursue adjustments to that moral reasoning. The goal is not simply to act in conformity with one's moral reasoning or conscience or feeling, 
though that is important, but to calibrate that moral reasoning to God's revelation about good and evil. This can take a long time. Our consciences aren't glorified or immediately transformed. Christians need to inform their consciences, that is themselves, and they need to maintain their consciences, their moral reasoning. Christians must regularly shape their moral reasoning according to scriptures and sound thinking. Healthy conscience doesn't happen automatically, takes education, effort, and transformation by the Spirit. Requires that the inner person be renewed daily. Fourth, although popular notions of conscience describe it as a guide, the biblical descriptions of conscience have to do with moral judgment. The primary function of conscience is self-conscious reflection on past action, determining what whether it was right or wrong, um, not so much about guiding you where you should go in the future. Now, it can guide you because you can learn from the judgments about your past action, but I think Christians often talk about their conscience about what's going to dictate for them how they live in the future, and it's almost like we've convinced ourselves we can ignore our conscience's judgments about the past, and that's the main job of conscience is to tell us, have we done what is right or wrong based on what we believe to be true? Um, conceptions of conscience, heart as guide, are in danger of elevating the inner person as a god. The notion of following one's heart, letting one's conscience be their guide, are poetic ways of encouraging someone to live according to their own desires. And if our desires are not being conformed to God's desires, that's a bad thing. Um, so that way of living, driven by your desires and what you want, has more to do with wisdom from below than from above. That wisdom prioritizes following Christ. Embracing him as the Lord of your life, commander of your desires, and authoritative guide for your moral decision-making. Fifth, within the community of faith, each person needs to consider the conscience of others in that community of faith. Their inner person's moral reasoning. This consideration has nothing to do with being overly scrupulous about ambiguous matters or adopting private secretive practices to avoid upsetting another person over disagreements about disputed issues. It has everything to do with considering how one's moral action might inform the conscience or consciousness of another person. The driving question should not be, will this person disagree with me and be judgmental toward me? Instead, two better questions, more biblical questions, should be asked. Number one, will my actions inform this person's conscience in a way that disagrees with God's moral judgments? And two, will my actions unduly pressure this person to take an action themselves that's out of step with their moral reasoning? Those are the questions that the Bible gives us to ask when we're considering other people's moral reasoning, their, their inner conscience. We'll see this more clearly when we get to Romans and 1 Corinthians in the next two weeks. But when we talk about our consciences and our corporate consciences, we might say, we don't want to antagonize anybody, but we're, when we're called to love them and to uh, operate charitably and have concern for their conscience, we want to ask, will my way of operating be confusing to them so that they think that something that's actually sin is right? So if I eat food in an idol temple and a weak Christian sees me do it, and they don't know that those idols aren't real gods, but I do, so I know I'm not worshiping a false god. Am I going to convince them that they can worship a false god by eating food in the idol temple? We're, we're being aware of what my action will do to their self-conscious moral reasoning. And then also we want to be aware of, am I, by the way I'm acting, pressuring someone to do something that goes against their moral reasoning? 
And, and um, I think that's probably mostly the case with new believers who have just become convinced of something and, and then we're like acting in a way that puts peer pressure on them or, or like teenagers, college kids. I think these are the people in particular. I don't think it's the 80-year-old person who their whole life has always thought that the Beatles are bad and they are mad that you listen to the Beatles. You listening to the Beatles, having a Beatles sticker on your car, is not going to convince them to change their mind. It's not going to pressure them to go against their moral judgment. That, that's what I'm saying. It's not being overly scrupulous. It is being cautious when, that, when you might convince that person to use sin against what they believe to be God's will for them. We'll get into that more in the coming weeks. Conscious, conscience, concisely defined. A working definition of conscience needs to take into consideration all the information we've examined so far, including the synonymity, I don't know how to say that well, of heart and conscience as terms that describe the inner person. The activity associated with heart and conscience that relates to moral reasoning, and especially to the rendering of moral verdicts regarding a past action. The necessity of a person's self-conscious reasoning about good and evil. And the fact that conscience is not the ultimate source of morality. It can't legislate morality. It can only make judgments about past moral actions. Judgments about past actions, however, if I said, can provide guidance for future actions. So when we bring these ideas together, we can define conscience as a person's self-conscious judgment about what is right and wrong. It's a person making a self-conscious decision about what they believe to be right or wrong, good or evil. Okay, I want to go through the final section and then take some time for questions, okay? So I, I talk in this last section about conscience and moral virtue. And here I am really just trying to argue once again against making conscience the center of the moral life. Conscience, you, is not the center of moral life. That's, that's making the self um, function as God, more or less. And it, it's an overly inflated view of the self who says, I can make moral judgments apart from the community of faith, apart from the commands of Christ, apart from the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Now, there, there has, within especially the Christian tradition, been movements and constructions of theories of ethics, and some of them put conscience at the center of your ethics. That, that's not helpful, um, especially because, as I've said, conscience is a judge, a low court judge. It's not a legislator. Um, I, I want instead for us to center our moral lives on the moral vision of the New Testament, okay? Um, we, we want Christ, love for God, love for neighbor, um, his death and resurrection— and the community that we're in to be the lenses through which we understand how to live the moral life. Um, it's, it's a difficult task to, to do that. Um, there's this guy, Richard B. Hayes, Moral Vision of the New Testament is an ethics book, and he, he points to this. I don't think the term conscience shows up once in his book. The reason for that is because up until a certain time in human history, um, Conscience and prudence were used interchangeably. They were like the same terms. So the old, old Christian ethics books don't talk about the conscience. They talk about prudence. And that's how conscience issues and 
prudence, matters of prudence are together, but then we conflate prudence with moral legislator, okay? So read that section. Hopefully it's helpful. But ultimately, we need to train our consciences so that we'll rejoice in what is really good and condemn what is really evil. This tax works itself out. Okay, I'm, I'm getting all tongue-tied here because this is something that is very important. The, the task of training your conscience works itself out in the community of faith, not as private individuals, under the authority of the scriptures, through the enablement of the Holy Spirit. This informing, training, and calibrating task requires both conversion and cultivation. So you need to be a Christian, but you need more than just to be a Christian. You need to cultivate right thinking. It requires ongoing formation in virtue, particularly the virtue of prudence. As with any virtue, prudence requires learning, habituation, effort, and experience. It's because the conscience, your inner person, is not static. It's always developing. It's always being strengthened or weakened, led or misled. So caring for your conscience, for your inner person, is a lifelong endeavor. All right. We've got like five minutes for questions. Um, Basic tenets, you are your conscience. It's not something different than you. It's not the ultimate judge, and it's not a legislator. It's a lower court judge that renders a verdict about whether what you just did was right or wrong, which then informs your future action. All right. I imagine there has to be a couple questions. Tim. Yeah, I Yeah, so I think I might push against that a little bit because I think you're talking it's partly right, but you're also just talking about culture and being in different cultures, I think. My my argument is that the church in the world are doing the exact same thing more often than not, which is to make the individual authoritative for moral reasoning. And then as individuals catch on to what other people are doing and something becomes popular, that might shape a cultural bent on a moral question. But I'm saying that Christians are often just as bad as the world because what they want to do is say the individual self is authoritative. And that's, that's not right. Um, but I think Christians, especially in Western countries, defend the autonomy of the moral self, individual self, to make moral judgments just as much as the atheists down the road. And, and that's a huge problem in my mind. And I think a huge source of disagreement in the church where people get really mad at each other because they want everyone else to conform to them, but they also want to be the one who legislates for everybody else. I don't know if that makes sense. Maybe I'm misunderstanding you, but... Okay, sorry.
sure. Okay, I get what you're saying. Yeah, and So I, again, will slightly disagree with you. I, I think on one level, societies have to say there are experts who can make judgments for us, and we don't want to kill the experts. We want to listen to them. And we might disagree with them, and we need to like listen to many experts maybe. But all in a society, we all say eventually we need someone drawing the lines so that people aren't doing what's right in their own eyes. Like that's, that's anarchy and chaos. So there's a good part of that, even though sometimes we'll disagree with it. I also would disagree that in the church, I'm not trying to say that our church needs to have one way of dealing with every ambiguous issue. That's actually what I'm arguing against in this class. I'm trying to say that Christians can disagree on a bunch of issues as they work to apply principles of Scripture together without um, being judgmental towards one another. So um, there, the, it's a complicated thing. We'll get into it in the coming weeks, but my burden is to say all of us should have our consciences informed by something outside of us, fundamentally the scriptures, interpreted in the community of faith. And even when that happens, there will be some distinctions about what to do in particular situations. And I want to say that's okay. And in fact, that might be the best thing possible, um, especially if everyone's saying we're, we're shaping our conscience by the scripture. Now, in coming weeks, I'm going to give you four kinds of conscience categories. And um, there's one that is not truly a conscience category, but we turn it into one, which is a preferential category that's based on our personalities and things we like. So then we start to say things like um, whether or not there's an elect, whether or not that guitar gets plugged in or not is a conscience issue. And I'm saying, no, that doesn't even fall into a conscience category, but I have this addendum fourth category that's preference. Some of us just don't like the sound of a guitar. Others of us love it, and it's our preference that's making that, and we assign it moral weight when it shouldn't have that moral weight assigned to it. It's preference, not prudence. So one final question. Okay, I would just appeal to you, come back for the rest of the weeks, look through these booklets that I'm printing. I'm, I obviously had a couple spelling errors in here, but I put a lot of time into trying to state things clearly and helpfully. And I, I, knowing all of us as we know each other, all of us probably think somewhat differently on all of these things. And what I don't want to have happen is for you to leave and uh, misrepresent me to yourself or to other people. So talk to me if there are things that you're wondering about and talk with each other about these things. Um, but don't allow these lessons to create strife. Allow them to give you a common point of information to work from as you talk about various issues together. All right? Okay, you're dismissed. Thanks.